This is episode 49 of The Quest, Claiming the Marks of Christ. There is something else, a, a matter which I think is of some significance, that I want to emphasize in this chapter on the marks of Christ, the stigmata of Jesus. Repeatedly in the numerous texts cited so far, the Apostle Paul has used phrases like, walk by the Spirit, live by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. I, I want to explore uh, those phrases and their meaning now uh, here in episode 49 as still another way of looking at what it means to be Christian, what it, what it means to bear the stigmata, the marks of Christ. When I was in high school and existential philosophy was all the rage, the famous existential philosopher and author Jean-Paul Sartre won the Nobel Prize for Literature. When Sartre refused, when he turned down the Nobel Prize, uh, prize, newspapers, magazines, radio and television commentaries were full of explanations and full of comments and Sartre quotations. The one I remember best from a, a national magazine is where Part said, I cornered the Holy Spirit in the cellar and threw him out by the collar. What Sartre was saying in alluding to the Holy Spirit uh, and cornering the Holy Spirit in, in, the, in, the, in the cellar and throwing him out by the collar, was that he had rid his life, had discarded, had, had thrown out any notion that there is anything that we can cling to or hold to or that will comfort and sustain us uh, in this life or, or that will give life meaning. Existentialism is a dark philosophy when followed to its ultimate and logical conclusions. So dark that not even its foremost thinkers can actually live it. The Christian agrees with Sartre and existentialism that it is possible to rid the human heart of the Holy Spirit's presence, if, if that is what you want. But contrary to existentialism, Christianity teaches that the Holy Spirit is a loving, guiding, sustaining spiritual force to which we may hold and which holds us. Both the Hebrew and Greek word, which is translated as spirit in the Bible, literally uh, mean a movement or current of air as with the breath or breeze or a blast of wind. By analogy, it came to mean the animating vital life force within us and around us and through us. The people of ancient Israel found in the wind a picture for both the judgment and the blessing of God. To the east of Israel were the great deserts, and when the wind came from the east, it blew abrasive sand and heat that scorched vegetation, scoured the earth, and burnt crops. The wind, in this sense, became a metaphor for the judgment of God against human arrogance, evil, injustice, and greed. But when the wind came from the west, off of the Mediterranean Sea, it brought 
rain in the winter and a refreshing coolness in the summer. It was a metaphor for reviving and renewing the soul. There were no commuter, computer models for predicting weather. And so they thought of the wind as totally unpredictable. It, it moved where it would and uh, was then, as now, beyond human control. John Muir, the great naturalist, wrote an account uh, that I think is both fascinating and beautiful of his famous adventure climbing to the top of a tall Douglas spruce during a fierce uh, Sierra windstorm. It, it reads like an exercise in Christian spiritual theology, if you understand it metaphorically. He wrote, The mountain winds, like the dew and the rain, sunshine and snow, are measured and bestowed with love on the forest to develop their strength and beauty. However restricted the scope of other forest influences, that of the wind is universal. The snow bends and trims the upper forest every winter. The lightning strikes a single tree here and there, while avalanches mow down thousands at a swoop as a gardener trims out a bed of flowers. But the winds go to every tree, touching every leaf and branch and furled bowl. Not one is forgotten. There is always something deeply exciting in the sounds of the winds of the woods. One of the most beautiful and exciting storms I ever enjoyed in the Sierra occurred in December 1874, when I happened to be exploring one of the tributary valleys of the Yuba River. The day was intensely pure, warm and balmy, and full of white sparkling sunshine, redolent of all the purest influences of spring, and at the same time enlivened with one of the most bracing windstorms conceivable. Instead of camping out, as I usually do, I then chanced to be stopping at the cabin of a friend. But when the storm began to sound, I lost no time in pushing out into the woods to enjoy it. The force of the gale was such that the most steadfast monarch of them all rocked down to its roots with a motion plainly perceptible when one leaned against it. Nature was holding high festival, and every fiber of the most rigid giants thrilled with glad excitement. Toward midday, it occurred to me that it would be a fine thing to climb one of the trees. After cautiously Casting about, I made choice of the tallest of a group of Douglas spruces that were grow growing close together. Though comparatively young, they were about 100 feet high, and their lithe, bushy tops were reeking and were, were rocking and swirling in wild ecstasy. I experienced no difficulty in reaching the top of this one, and never before did I enjoy so noble an exhilaration of motion, 
The slender top fairly flapped and swished in the passionate torrent, bending and swirling backward and forward, tracing indescribable combinations of vertical and horizontal curves, while I clung with muscle firm braced like a bobo link on a reed. The sounds of the storm corresponded gloriously with all this exuberance of light and motion. I kept my lofty perch for hours. Most people like to look at mountain rivers and bear them in mind, but few care to look at the winds, though far more beautiful and sublime, and at times become almost as visible as flowing water. When the storm began to abate, I dismounted and sauntered down through the calming woods. The storm tones died away, and turning toward the east, I beheld the countless hosts of the forest, hushed and tranquil, towering above one another on the slopes of the hills like a devout audience. The setting sun filled them with amber light and seemed to say, while they listened, My peace I give to you. As I gazed on the impressive scene, all the so-called ruin of the storm was forgotten, and never before did those noble woods appear so fresh, so joyous, so immortal. What a wonderful metaphor for the experience of the Holy Spirit. Untamed wind, wild beauty, swirling passion, perfect peace. Acts 8, 9 through 21. I'm shifting gears um, a little now. Acts 8, 9 through 21 tells the intriguing story of Simon Magus, a wealthy and influential wizard who amazed everyone in Samaria with his displays of magic and sorcery. After becoming a Christian himself, Simon offered to purchase from the Apostle Peter and John the supernatural power of transmitting the Holy Spirit. You can, you can read the story for yourself. For, for now, I am sim simply observing how Simon's interest in the Holy Spirit was a pragmatic one. He saw its enormous practical potential for gaining more money, more power, and greater status. Uh, kind of like the bad guys in the Indiana Jones movie, except that there's really nothing in the text itself to indicate Simon was all that evil. But if we desire the Spirit in order to use it for our own personal advantage, we are already slipping over the edge, into the dark abyss. The divine spirit is, in this sense, of no practical use to us because God cannot be controlled or managed or used by us. That is, in fact, the very definition of magical thinking. The belief that if I know enough, if if I have the right information or know the right formula or the right spell to cast, uh, I will be able to take the risk and the ambiguity out of life. Life will be completely manageable. 
But if what we mean is not whether the Holy Spirit is um, practical in this sense, but if what we mean is whether the Holy Spirit makes a real difference in life, both inwardly and outwardly, the answer is yes, certainly. In Scripture, the Holy Spirit is experienced as the personal presence of God. It is the mysterious power which is the source of the mental and spiritual perceptions and skills of chosen men and women, giving them the strength, the courage, the knowledge, and the wisdom to carry out some sacred mission for the good of others. Uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta perhaps represents a modern and more familiar figure for us. In spite of formidable obstacles and her intense struggles physically, emotionally, and spiritually, what she did for the poorest of the poor and for Christ was a work of, of breathtaking beauty. I think the British intellectual Malcolm Muggeridge said of Mother Teresa, although I'm not uh, quite certain at, at just this moment that he was the source of this quote, uh, but it goes like this. There is a light in this world, a healing spirit more powerful than any darkness we may encounter. We sometimes lose sight of this force when there is suffering, when there is too much pain, then suddenly the Spirit will emerge through the lives of ordinary people who hear a call and answer in extraordinary ways. So, the Holy Spirit is a power and a help. A paraclete, Jesus says, a, a friend who comes to stand alongside, walk alongside, and help us a comforting and strengthening and guiding presence given so that we can be a light of help, hope, and healing uh, ourselves. The Holy Spirit is both a gift and a gift giver, meant to be enjoyed with grateful hearts and used for the joy of others. What do you have that you did not receive, asked Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And then in 12, 7, he writes, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright sums it up uh, very well. God, he says, doesn't give people the Holy Spirit in order to help them enjoy the spiritual equivalent of a day at Disneyland. If we breathe the breath of God, the Spirit of God, it means that God is our life force. And it also means that God is in us and part of us and, and that we're part of God. In the epistle to the Romans, St. Paul says, and, I am, and I'm paraphrasing here, Paul says, you're on the spiritual level if the Spirit of God dwells in you. But anyone who does not welcome the invisible but very real and very present Spirit of Christ, that person has no idea of what we are talking about and is no true Christian. 
when Paul lives and breathes, when, when, sorry, when God lives and breathes in you, you are set free, Paul goes on, from a dead life. With God's Spirit living in you, life is given to your mortal body. This is through God's Spirit who lives in you. Again, that's Romans 8, 9 through 11. It is this intimate relationship that saves us, that makes us fully human, makes us fully alive. It is what the Bible means by eternal life. For, for the most part, philosophy, psychology, and religion are agreed that it is our capacity for relationship and for actually relating that makes a person a person. The mystery of the person somehow lies in how love, loving, and being loved lifts the individual up to uh, not something, but to someone with uniqueness, identity, substance, and value. This is what many of the early church saints and thinkers meant by divination. Uh, participation, not in the nature of God, but in God's personal existence and presence. The goal of salvation is that the personal life which is realized in God should also be realized on the level of human existence. What can be said is that we become persons in the true meaning of that word. When we become come an image and likeness of God when we are compassionate. Demonstrate to everyone we meet that we are for them and not against them. Celebrate their joys, live with gratitude, with love and joyful, wonderful God. This is eternal life, just as living without love, unwanted and uncared for, and unwanting or uncaring is nothing less than death. As the Greek Orthodox priest and Metropolitan John uh, Zazoulos writes, conversely, condemnation to eternal death is nothing other than a person being allowed to decline, of a person being allowed to decline into a thing, into absolute anonymity, to hear the terrifying words, I do not know you. The Holy Spirit is the sacred force, the divine current that blows and cleanses all stagnation away, the refreshing breeze, the clean breath, the exhilarating wind that convinces us we are loved, wanted, desired, and empowers us to love. That's div divination. There's a great text in Isaiah that goes like this. Fear not, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. You are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Fear not, for I am with you. I have called you by name.
The sense of being known, of being called by name, is an experience of God's Spirit, of Christ's presence. Sometimes Christians have a sense of having spoken with a wisdom that is not usual for them, that is, that is somehow from beyond them, or, or they experience the healing of an emotional wound that no one thought could ever be healed. Or they're able to forgive some awful wrong done to them that seemed unfor unforgivable and to get on with life. Or are able to love the unlovable. Or strangely, they experience uh, profound gratitude in the most difficult of circumstances. Or in highly provocative and dangerous circumstances, they remain free of fear and without anger. Or... They find they have an amazing strength to keep on going when going on seemed impossible or experience or, or they experience the reality of the numinous. All of these are also experiences of the Holy Spirit. We can think of the Pauline text we have read as describing the Christian life in terms of the Jewish exodus from Egypt and of their long trek to the promised land. And the Holy Spirit is the guiding, sustaining presence of God, lamenting our failures, rejoicing over our every step forward, our, uh, and our ultimate inheritance. But we must be careful to consider the communal as well as the individual nature of our quests. And we will do that. We'll, we will take that up in the next session.